Awesome. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that introduction. I love that video. I cried during the first service when I saw it. That was super emotional. Um, I love baptisms. I got baptized in the ocean. I've baptized people in the ocean. And what I've learned um, of doing these baptisms is nobody wants to wear a wetsuit because I think they're afraid it won't stick, right? If the water doesn't touch your skin, then somehow it doesn't work. Um, so no one wants to wear a wetsuit, but every time I've done the baptism, I'm wearing a wetsuit. So um, I'm impressed with those pastors not wearing a wetsuit. I think part of the reaction that those people are expressing is like, wow, I just got baptism, baptized, and I just got dunked in 53-degree water, which will make you remember the moment even more. Um, it's good to be here, you guys. Um, my wife Gretchen and I know a lot of you. We've been a part of uh, the Central Coast community for 21 years, and a lot of you are involved in some of the stuff that we've been doing over the years. Uh, as I left the house this morning, Gretchen went to our church, and she wanted to make sure that I said, that she, that I said hi to everyone that she knows. So hi to everyone that she knows. Uh, I'm not going to go try to find everyone. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun to be able to speak on Mother's Day. Brian asked me uh, about a month ago to, to teach on May 12th, and I looked at my calendar, and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's Mother's Day. Like, this is a big one of all the, like, services to teach at. I think, I think Easter is probably, like, the Super Bowl of, you know, times to teach, and this might be, like, the divisional playoffs. It's, it's just that important, you know? And, and, but then he said, teach on Mother's Day. I'm like, or teach on baptism. And he said, because mothers love baptism. I thought, oh, that's before I knew there was going to be a baptism the week later. I just thought that's just the random topic on Mother's Day <laughs> is teaching on baptism, uh, which is a great topic, but mothers like a lot of things. So we could have chosen something else. I don't know. <laughs> but no, it makes sense. I'm setting up for next week. I, I, talked to him, I was talking to my pastor, Jason Hickey, at Renovate, which is where we go to church. And I'm like, dude, how am I going to like connect Mother's Day and baptism? He goes, easy, easy. Mary was the very first baptizer of Jesus. He was born of her water. I'm like, ugh. <laughs> no. If you know Jason, that makes all the sense in the world. So then we just started talking about teaching on baptism. And some of our youth pastor days started to come out. I'm like, oh, dude, what if? I got one of those, those water cannons, you know, those super soakers, and I just like sprayed down the crowd, right? Junior hires would love it, and I could say, see people, the water doesn't make any difference. Don't you feel the same? It's not about the water. But I thought that would be really dishonoring to the moms in the group, so I'm not even going to attempt to connect the two. So I do want to talk about moms, though, before we talk about baptism, and I want to honor moms. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, moms have a lot of abilities. One of the things that just blows me away every time I see it is a mom's ability to interpret a child. You know what I'm talking about? Where the one-year-old or the two-year-old is like babbling or speaking in tongues. I don't know what's going on, but you know, you need an interpreter and the mom is there to do the interpreting. It's just phenomenal. Uh, we, we have kids, our kids are grown up now, but when they were little, I remember one time we had a babysitter, and this babysitter uh, talked to us when we came back from our date night and said, oh my goodness, um, everything went, went pretty well, but Jason was so frustrated 
because he kept asking for something. He kept asking for jati but, jati but, jati but. And I'm like, I have no idea what jati but is. And Gretchen's like, oh, that's chocolate milk. I don't know how she does it. So we actually still call milk but to today. So that's what we call milk. But so here, here's, so moms have a, they do really well at interpreting or translating what kids are saying. I think though dads need help, not just in translating or interpreting what kids are saying, but in what moms are saying. So moms, this is for you. I'm gonna share with the dads, especially the young dads, some translations of mom speak, okay? And these are very particular to today on Mother's Day. So when mom says what she really means is, okay? So when mom says, you don't need to worry about getting me a gift, your presence is the only present I really need. What she really means is, dude, I've been dropping hints for an entire month. If you blow this, you're in big trouble. Another one, right? I don't, I don't mind cooking on Mother's Day. I love serving you and the kids. Hey, if you haven't noticed, this is what she really means. I didn't go shopping in the last three days, and we have nothing to eat in the fridge. You better make dinner happen. Here's the last one. This is to help understand when a mom is speaking to a child what she really means. So when she says to one of the kids, oh honey, it's okay you didn't get me anything. I love all my kids the same, and this doesn't change anything. What she really means is that dad of yours better get his act together and take you to the store. I may love all you kids the same, but he's a different story. <laughs> all right. Well... <laughs> That's awesome. Moms are amazing, and I think one of the things that's true is that they're, they're kind of on call 24-7. And so I was thinking about this. I think moms are the OG first responders, right? From the very beginning of time, before we had police and firemen and all that kind of thing, the moms were the very first on the scene. And they're first on the scene with medical care. And sometimes that can be something really gnarly that they have to deal with, and then sometimes you know, the kid's saying, I have a boo-boo, and you're looking for it, and like, I don't see a boo-boo. I have no idea where to stick this Hello Kitty Band-Aid, right? You just have no idea, but moms somehow figure it out. They also have to discern and remember which kid wants the Hello Kitty Band-Aids and which one wants the Avenger Band-Aids, and that can, that's a challenge, and that probably changes, right? Kids kind of switch. They're also the first responders in a disaster, right? When the four-year-old decides that he wants to make paschetti for the two-year-old, and now the kitchen looks like a bomb went off in it, and there's sauce everywhere. Or when that two-year-old shows up in the bedroom with the Sharpie in the hand, right, and kind of all over the face, and says, me color couch. <laughs> Somehow moms know how to get that stuff out of couches and all kinds of things. They're the police presence when there's arguments and fights, and of course, their counselors, and their teachers, and their pastors, and their cooks, and you guys do so much. So we thank you, and we, we definitely want to honor you today. And for all you dads out there, don't blow it. Don't <laughs> blow it. All right. Well, I do want to talk about baptism, and I was talking about like, moms are like the OG first responders. Let's go back to the OG baptizer, 
And that'll be our starting place to looking at baptism. What is this thing called baptism? Why do we do it? What's it all about? So the OG baptizer, if you don't know, is the guy with baptism in his name. It's John the Baptist. And so we're going we're gonna to start there. Now, what happens is you start reading your New Testament. Let's say you're reading the book of John. And John starts off with this pretty philosophical description of Jesus. He was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He was in the beginning. He was the Word. This kind of theological thing for about, I, don't know, I forget what it is, like 14, 15 verses or so. And then he jumps right into John the Baptist, chapter 1. And what you see is you see this kind of crazy guy who's baptizing people, and it'd be the way that we have seen baptisms happen today, dunking them in water, except it was the Jordan and not the Pacific, but dunking them in water and doing that um, so that they could be called into repentance. Now, keep in mind that Christianity had not yet started. Jesus hadn't started his ministry yet. And so you got to wonder, where did that come from? Where did this water baptism come from? Was it something that John the Baptist was kind of told to do through the Spirit? Was it just his own genius idea? Um, is, it, is it his, or does it draw upon something else? Now, the truth of it is, there actually are lots of water ceremonies within the Jewish tradition. Okay? Water is a great way to symbolize cleansing or renewal. It also symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And so in Judaism, there's lots of ceremonial practices that involve water. There is a particular practice in Judaism that involves baptism. And that is a practice where if somebody who was not ethnically Jewish, who was not a part of the Jewish community, wanted to become a follower of Yahweh, wanted to join in the covenant following and practice of Judaism, they would go through a baptism in order to be now newly identified with this new community. So it was a baptism of repentance, more in the sense of turning from Gentile ways and now joining this covenant community. So it's, it's kind of a way of identifying with this new group of people to whom you're going to be a follower, right? With whom you're going to be a follower. And, and it makes sense if you think about the word baptism. If you look at the Greek word, it means to dunk. And it was often used when you would take cloth and you wanted to give it a new identity. You wanted to give it a new color. So if you took white linen and you wanted it to be blue or green or whatever, you would baptize it in the dye and that would take on this new identity. So that's the roots from which John the Baptist was doing his baptism. However, though there was a version 1.0 within the Jewish tradition, his was a bit different. One of the things that he was doing that was quite different uh, is he was requiring that even the Jews themselves be baptized. And for a Jew, that would be heresy. That, there's no way you'd do that. Because that was for the Gentiles, that was for the pagans. But John is saying, look, it doesn't matter what your religious background is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. To truly follow after God, you need to repent, and repent robustly. And he would explain what that meant in terms of giving and some other ways of sacrificing. So he was calling the Jews to do something that was only intended for the Gentiles. Now, when Jesus comes onto the scene, the first thing he does 
in his public ministry is he gets baptized. Now imagine that. Here's this guy that wants to, pro he's claiming to be king of the Jews. He's claiming to be the savior of the Jews. He's the promised one of all those Old Testament prophecies. And what is he doing? He's going through this Gentile practice of being baptized. And the reason he does that is because Jesus is like no other. He is breaking down the barriers, breaking down the walls between Jews and Gentiles. He's also showing profound humility as the Messiah to be baptized by another human being. It's amazing. Jesus, from the very beginning, though we may not notice that, from the very beginning is saying, I'm going to blow all of your expectations out of the water. I'm completely different. I'm going to break down walls and cultural boundaries and religious boundaries and do something wholly, completely different. Okay? So if you're reading the book of John, you see John the Baptist doing this water baptism, but then later on he explains where his baptism fits into the bigger picture. So let's look at that passage. Let's look at John chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. <clears throat> okay, so it says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So what happened is after Jesus' water baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and remained on him. And we'll talk a little bit about why that's significant. Verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remained, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what you see is John saying, yeah, I've got this water baptism, but there's somebody coming who is going to do something far more profound. Not a ceremony with water, but an anointing by God's Spirit. The very person of God will come upon people. And for, for a Jew to hear this idea that the Holy Spirit would come and remain and would do that to anybody who gets baptized, Jew or Gentile, was just earth-shattering, earth totally profound. Even the idea that the Spirit would come on any person and remain was totally foreign. Because the only people that received the Spirit in, within Judaism would be a prophet or a king, right? Somebody of prominent stature. And there was no guarantee that that spirit would remain. When David's confessing his son with Bathsheba, what does he pray? He says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He was afraid that the spirit would be taken away from him. There was no guarantee. But what John is proclaiming and what Jesus proclaims is, no, the spirit is intended for everybody. And when he comes, he will remain and that is going to be a baptism that is totally transformative. So the water baptism, both the Old Testament one and then John the Baptist's version 2.0, a little bit different but very similar, none of those ceremonies conferred any kind of spiritual transformation. They weren't in and of themselves a thing that made you a follower of God. They didn't confer forgiveness. They didn't confer grace. It wasn't anything supernatural in that regard. From the very beginning, it never had in and of itself supernatural power. It was important. It was a declaration and an important ritual to go through. 
But keep in mind, none of it had that intended transformational power, okay? So there's a little bit of background from John talking about baptism. Now, if you go further into the book of John, you have Jesus now explaining what this spiritual baptism looks like. So I'd like to take a look at that passage. So we're kind of, we're getting deeper into the book of John, and as you see John develop this idea of water and baptism, it becomes more clear and there's more specifics about what it's all about. In the beginning, you just see John doing some stuff, but the explanation comes throughout the book. Great book to read. If you haven't read it, it's, it's awesome. It talks so much about the person of Jesus and the works of Jesus. So here we have a Jewish follower coming up to Jesus, a Pharisee, so he's one of the leaders, and he comes up to him by night because he needed to do it in secret, maybe concern what some of the other leaders might think. And he asks Jesus a question. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus perhaps was referring to something in the Old Testament where a new convert to Judaism, particularly a Gentile convert, would be considered a new child of God. But apparently for Nicodemus, it was... um, Not clear what Jesus was referring to, so he asks another question. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jason Hickey would love that, right, if that's really what it was. Okay. Um, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So now, the, right, so now the contrast is flesh, water, spirit is how you inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a born-again experience that needs to happen, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. That's the end of the verse. It's great. I was thinking, isn't there one more? Um, so here we hear that born-again phrase that maybe you're familiar with. And sometimes we're not sure what that means. Sometimes we think it refers to like a new set of behavior, a new set of outward way of acting um, and interacting with the world. And it can mean that, of course. But what it really means is something spiritual that's happening, something transformative that happens. And what Jesus is getting at is no ceremony, nothing of human flesh, nothing that man can do is going to truly transform you and make it possible for you to live within the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a spiritual thing, and the only way to enter into the spiritual life is to be spiritually born again, which is totally a work of the Holy Spirit. Later in the book of John, John talks about, well, he quotes Jesus talking about how the Holy Spirit is living water, And if you have that living water, you're going to just gush forth. And then later in the book of John, before Christ's crucifixion, he records the longest teaching of Jesus. Chapters 15 through 17 of John is this massive teaching of Jesus. 
And in that teaching, it's full of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus wants everyone to know that this thing, this Christianity, this new way of living isn't about ceremony. It isn't about going through these rituals. But ultimately, it's about this transformation that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, it's better that I leave, he says, so that the Spirit will come. And then he does come. If you read the book of Acts, you see in chapter 2, you see the Holy Spirit coming and coming upon everybody. Okay, anybody that was there that was believing, the Spirit came upon them. And in fact, what the Spirit does is he has them speak in different tongues of different languages to illustrate that the Spirit is to be poured out on every person, every culture, every ethnicity. It's not just for the Jews alone. As you read through the book of Acts, you, you see that wrestling of, well, you know, is this for the Jews, is it for the Gentiles? And the, the apostles say, look, it's important that, it was important that the, there was an expression of speaking in tongues during that time to demonstrate outwardly that the Holy Spirit was actually on these Gentiles. Okay? So that's a little bit about spiritual baptism um, from the perspective of John and Jesus. Uh, I'll share one more passage with you because as the church grows, there was more development in the thought of baptism, water baptism, and spiritual baptism. And so Paul, as he's teaching the, the Roman church, shares his thoughts. So let's look at what Paul has to say. It's in Romans chapter 6. So here's what he says. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So we can see how Paul is really just running with the idea of being born again. Right? So when you're baptized, you're lowered down into the water, and that symbolizes your identity with Christ's death, particularly, we'll get into this, particularly death to your old self. And then you're born again, right? And you're raised up now to a newness of life. So there's a new life that happens through the working of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. So if we have been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. So now the metaphor is slavery to sin and then being freed from that sin. So death to life, slavery to freedom. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that he will also, we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. It is worth cheering about, I mean, really. <laughs> but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay. 
So let, let's talk about all these passages that we've been looking at so far. So the Old Testament baptism, version 1.0, Gentiles coming into the community of Israel. Version 2.0 is John's baptism for everybody, strong sense of repentance, okay? And then that's to usher in this spiritual baptism where God's spirit comes in and does this transformative work. So I'll share, I'll share an illustration. Um, our, our men, we do an annual men's retreat, and uh, what I love about it is it's usually like 15 bucks, super cheap, because basically they have to bring their own food, it's camping, and we try to find a ranch or something to do these men's retreats at, and it's awesome. Like the, we charge $15, but they spend like $15 on steak, um, and you should see this massive grill. It's just piled high, full of tri-tip and all this meat. It's awesome. Love it. We've been doing the retreat up at this ranch outside of Santa Margarita, and a friend of mine, Sean Somerville, his dad owns the ranch, and it's a great spot for a men's retreat, lots of property, and I think usually a rattlesnake ends up on the grill at least every single year, so lots of wildlife and manly stuff happens. One of my favorite things about this property is there's this incredible workshop that Sean's dad has. And inside of this workshop, he has these old woody station wagons that he restores. So here's one of them. And this woody wagon is actually not restored. This is OG woody wagon from the 1940s. Nothing has been done to it. He takes this thing to car shows and it wins all kinds of rewards, awards because it is original, right? So this would be like version 1.0, the original. What he also has is a picture of the back of it, but honestly, that other picture is better. So let's just keep that one up. You know, the, there you go. It's a beautiful car. He also has these wagons where he has done redone all of the woodwork on the outside of it. So it looks cleaner. It looks brighter. The paint he usually does the paint. The paint looks shinier. So it looks amazing. Um, and I would say that's like version 2.0. Just like in those two baptisms, they're very similar. It's kind of doing something to the outside, but honestly, it's not that much different. Not a lot has transformed. This is still 1940s technology. And so if you were to drive it to a car show, it'd go really slow. It doesn't have power steering. It'd be a super bumpy ride. It would be a pretty tough way to get there, though fun. But it would, it would just be a 1940s car. This past year, I was up there, and I should have taken a picture of it. I don't have it, but he has this new one that he bought, and it's gone through version 2.0, so it looks amazing on the outside. But he said, this one's a sleeper. I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, because it actually has a turbocharged engine. I forget what the horsepower is on it, like 300 horsepower. And it's connected to this five-speed automatic transmission, and it's got disc power brakes on all four wheels. It's got power steering. He says, it's so fun to pull up next to these kids in their little hot rods, and they look over at Grandpa's you know, 1940 wagon, and then he just blows them off the line. He's like this, and he's just like this funny old guy. He's an old surfer, and he just gets such a kick out of that. That's, if you will, version 3.0, because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about an entire transformation of what's on the inside, right? 
The Holy Spirit is totally redoing all that's within us that makes us work, makes us run. And it is turbocharged and modernized, and it's exactly the way a modern car would be. Now, from the outside, we all, would look, the, we all look the same, whether we've got the spirit in us or not, though our behavior should change. But, you know, basically, you'd still look like a human being. But what's happened on the inside is totally transformative. So let's talk about that. There's this interesting language that we've been coming across, being born again or becoming a new person, right? New life. Like, what does that really mean? Now, on one hand, what it means is you've taken on a new identity. So when you're baptized in the Spirit, you are now clothed in Christ's righteousness. You're covered with his righteousness. The water kind of symbolizes that. You're cleansed and you're declared holy, you're declared righteous, you're also declared a son of God or a daughter of God, you're no longer an orphan, you're actually now part of the family, you know, you know all those positional truths change. Okay, so there's that sense where your identity changes. So you could say, well, that's what it means to be a new person, you're now a son of God, you're no longer an orphan, you also are viewed as being holy and righteous. And that's true, but I think there's more to it. I think it's more like that sleeper, woody wagon, where we become a new person because our, the things that make us a person are actually being transformed. And what I mean by that is, if you think about what personhood is or what it means to be a person, to be a person is to have intellect, it's to have emotion, it's to have will, it's to have desire, uh, it's to have a certain set of beliefs, or, or certain, you can believe things, and you can actually believe things about your beliefs. These are things that set persons apart from other things. There's, we can have beliefs about our beliefs, we have intellect, we have emotion, we have free will. Okay, that's what it means to be a person. Now, your old person, or your old self, was controlled by sin, right? You were dead, spiritually speaking. So what that means is, your desires were dead to the things of God. You would desire the things of the flesh. You would desire sin. You would desire things of the world. Your beliefs were affected by sin as well. And in some sense, your beliefs were dead or unable to really come to understand the things of God. I can remember before I was a Christian, my mom shared a passage with me, and I forget which one it was, uh, it was a psalm, and I can remember uh, kind of being disgusted by it. It was this weird reaction to God's word. I just, I could not embrace it. Now, that's not everyone's story, but that was just an example of how my, my beliefs were so against the things of God because I was dead to spiritual things. And, and my desires, right? And my will, think about that. When your will is dead, it, it can't not choose to do the things that are right. Now, sometimes we get it right, but over the course of time, we choose sin, right, over righteousness. We're, we're dead. When the Spirit comes in, he renews all that. He regenerates our person in that he changes our will. We now have the ability to choose the things of God. He works and wills to his good pleasure in us. We also learn that the Spirit sets its desires against the flesh. 
so that we would not do the things that we please, right? The Spirit comes in and transforms our desires and allows us to desire the things of God. And our beliefs, right? The Spirit leads us into all truth so that we can actually believe the things of God. So when we say that we're a new person, that's really true. The Spirit comes in and transforms our personhood, the things that make people people, our beliefs, our desires, our thoughts, all of that stuff, so that we can actually now live for God and naturally do the works of God, right? The, the idea here is, sure, Christians should love and Christians should be kind and Christians should be generous in their actions, but what the Holy Spirit's doing in a transformative way is he's making us loving people. He's making us kind people. He's transforming us so that we're generous people naturally. Not just because we try real hard, but it's, it's actually who we become. So we become new people. It's incredible. It's incredible. So this baptism of the Spirit, this being born again, this being regenerated, that's what that's all about. It's, it's actually, in many ways, it's making you the kind of person you always were intended to be by freeing you from the constraints of sin and allowing you to be who you should be. That's what it's all about. Okay, well, why get baptized in water? I've just explained that spiritual baptism, that's the real transformative work. It's not about what you do on the outside. True, absolutely true. So why go through the ritual of baptism? Well, I've been thinking about this, and I think oftentimes we have a little bit of a resistance towards ritual or religious practice. At least often those in this kind of church setting, it's like, I don't want to just go through a ritual, or I don't know about that. It seems too religious to me. Like, it's all about what the Spirit does anyway. So we kind of balk at ceremony and religious ritual, Uh, except when it comes to weddings. We're all about weddings. We love that one, right? We love that ceremony. We love that ritual, which is what a wedding is. It's a religious ritual. We're all about that one. Um, and we should be. It's an amazing thing. In fact, here you go, TBT. I have a picture of me and my wife, Gretchen, on our wedding day. <laughs> um, there we go, 1989. So puffy sleeves, the whole deal. Um, Now think about this. This day was an incredible day. And we prepared for it. Think about all that goes in before this day, right? You've got the engagement. You have, we didn't do this back then, but there's like engagement parties and engagement pictures and then save the dates and then hopefully premarital counseling, if you're smart. You go through that and then there's, there's, you got to meet with a caterer, you got to find a venue, you get to go all through all this stuff even before that day. And then that day, all of these people come from all over the place. This was in Arizona. I had people come from Arizona. We had relatives. I had people come from California. This was in Arizona. We had people come from Pennsylvania. I don't think anyone came from overseas, but that happens. You know, all of your friends and family who are close to you are there for that day. And then you spend thousands of dollars right, to feed all these people and to to have this big to-do about this coming together, this union of a man and a woman. And I think that's awesome. I love weddings. Man, someone's paying for me to hang out with my friends and eat food. It's amazing. Thanks for doing that. It's a great occasion. 
But think about this. We go to a lot of effort to celebrate this day, and it's an important day. But the union of a man and a woman is nothing to compare to the union we experience with Jesus Christ. When we become his, when we have Christ come into our life, that is a totally transformative kind of thing. This marriage only lasts on earth till death do us part. It doesn't go into heaven. Our union with Christ is for all eternity, right? It's totally transformative. Now, I think we should have a ceremony like this. I think it's really important. But even more so, should we celebrate in the same kind of ceremonial way the union that happens between a person and his or her God? That's what the baptism next Sunday is all about. It is a coming together of family, hopefully, if they can be there, coming together of community to watch this amazing thing happen, which is a celebration of a union that takes place. Now, some, some might say, well, the wedding is different because it's at the wedding that it becomes legal. Well, you don't need a big party or ceremony to make it legal. You can do that anywhere. Or somebody might say, well, the pastor is, 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 is um, making them one. It's, it's by them doing the vows and the pastor saying, by the authority invested in me, you're man and wife. You, I declare, no, that's not, I've done weddings, that's not, I don't do that part. That's God's part. God's the one that makes the union actually happen. It's a, on a spiritual level. So think about the effort and the energy we put into, ju- it's just a ceremony. It's an important one, and it's the same reason that we should put effort and energy into the baptism, because we do want to celebrate that. It is a sacred thing. It symbolizes so much that's happened on a a spiritual level. It's a sacred moment, and it's a celebratory moment. And we do want people there just the same way that Gretchen and I had our friends there, because we need people to be along with us in the journey. We want to stand with our closest friends who will be with us by our side when things get tough. We want people at a baptism to say, these are my people. This is my community. And when you're there, you're not passive in your participation. You're agreeing that you're going to help this person walk the walk, right? Follow Jesus. So the wedding ceremony is awesome, but and we should celebrate it, but Think about what that means about a baptism. It's even more important, I think, and more profound. Let me share a couple other reasons why I think baptism is important. Um, we are commanded to be baptism, baptized, so it's, a, it's an act of obedience. Christ modeled that. The New Testament church, we see people getting baptized. It also is an important tradition. And I know we don't often value tradition much sometimes in our religious circles, but I think tradition's important. When you think about the believers in Jesus' day or 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, their lives were so different, their worship was so different, the buildings that they gathered in were so different, but there's one thing that connects us with all of those saints of the past. It's this. This practice, this ritual connects us with the family of God from thousands of years ago. And that is a cool thing. It's bigger than just us in this century. We are linked 
in our past, and it's a way of linking us through that tradition. So here's, here's the to-do, right? Here's the takeaway. If you have not been baptized, take the opportunity to do that this Sunday, to celebrate a sacred thing that's happened in your life. And if it's happened one year ago or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, it doesn't matter. Mark the moment. Mark the occasion with friends and family. Celebrate that. If you've been baptized before, then go and be a part of that, to celebrate with them and to be a part of the community that will support. And for those of you who are here and none of this is, all this is new and you've never even, um, maybe not heard this stuff before and certainly haven't asked Jesus into your life, I encourage you to do that. It really is the way that you can become all that you were designed to be. It really is the way of experiencing real life because you're freed from yourself. You're freed from your flesh. You're freed from sin to live life according to design. And how cool would it be to make that decision today and then to celebrate it next Sunday? If you'd like to talk more about that, I'll be around, and I'm sure the pastors would love to talk to you as well. Let me pray for you guys. Yeah, Lord, it's, it's just amazing. I, I, I love talking about this stuff, and it reminds me what an amazing God you are. This is not just a belief system. This is not just a religion, a practice, though it is that. It's about a new life that's born out of your spirit living in us, the God of the universe inhabiting us, each and every one of us. So, Lord, thank you for rescuing us from ourselves, from our sin, from our shame, from our guilt, from our desires and beliefs and our brokenness and giving us new life. Lord, how fun will it be to celebrate that together next Sunday. Thanks that you've given us something like a ceremony to mark the moment, to remember and look back on, and to share with friends. In Jesus' name, amen.